I went in the first service it was like I got cornered I felt like a rat cornered the conviction was so heavy pastor gafur at that time was probably running around 10 12 people 15 people small church i felt i sat in the corner most seat thinking it was cool but i felt cornered and i still remember the altar call he gave he said this the people here you're running from god i knew it was me the same haunting words god's hands on and i couldn't resist even in that small setting uh, coming forward in june 22nd 2002 about my knee at the altar i said god i'm done with this running i think i felt like i was home i came i i, I gave my life to christ on that service welcome to the free sermon podcast of the potter's house church in virginia beach affiliated with christian fellowship ministries our vision is winning souls making disciples and planting churches it's tuesday where you're going to hear a powerful testimony of God's grace revealed in human lives. Each Tuesday you'll hear Pastor Adam interviewing pastors from around the world to share the mighty miracles that God has done in their lives to give you hope for yours. We share the stories of the men behind the messages you hear every other day on this podcast. Keep in mind that the free version only includes a portion of the whole testimony interview. To listen to the full version, Use the links in the show notes to subscribe via Apple Podcasts or supercast.tech. Every dollar goes to supporting world evangelism. Enjoy today's testimony Tuesday. All right, and welcome back to VBBH Sermon Podcast here on Testimony Tuesday. It's Pastor Adam with you again, and we have a wonderful guest for you uh, on the line all the way from Bangalore, India. Can you believe it's Pastor Paki Raj? Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, thank you, Pastor Adam. Thank you for having me here. It's such a such a privilege to be asked to be part of this, and uh, I'm looking forward to this. Well, thank God you uh, you you flatter us. It is a it is a great blessing to have you, and especially because for the listeners to know that you are. uh sacrificing your early sunday morning to be along with us we were trying to work out uh a good time to do this interview and couldn't find a good one uh we would have had to delay it a month or more but um uh, but you were uh willing to to do this early on a sunday morning and uh that's a great blessing for us so thank you so much no problem thank you <laughs> So Pastor Paki for uh I don't know who wouldn't know who you are but uh for those who may not know you or know of you uh I wonder if you could just give yourself a little introduction and uh and a, a quick testimony of what God is doing in Bangalore India. Well, um my wife Samantha, my three kids, I have three kids, Abigail, Caleb and Amy, we are pastoring in Bangalore India and God is doing a work for us here. in the nation of india we have right now 42 42 churches uh in india and uh just a powerful hand of god upon our nation and one of the amazing things that i see is that god is able to use just a common man uh to <clears throat> proclaim the gospel here in this uh, vibrant diverse nation and uh, you know it's such a joy and a privilege to do what god has called us to do through this wonderful fellowship 42 churches that is amazing uh that's almost hard for me to believe um in in such well uh comparatively speaking a small amount of time since we started planting churches in india um it was after i was saved that we planted our first church which was not that long ago i think in was it uh early 2000s that we uh Chandler Church started putting in um churches into India is that correct yeah the first church uh the Coxton church which i pastor right now was planted in 2001 uh Oscar and Linda Gafur were here and not long after a year after the church was opened my wife and i we got saved in 2002 Wow, what a blessing. Well, I can't wait to hear your testimony. I've heard snippets and little clips here and there through your preaching and maybe secondhand from my good friend uh Dan Rubianis, but um but I haven't heard it from you and so I I'm excited to hear. I I would love to hear a little bit about uh what was 
young Pocky Raj like growing up? And what what was your house like when you uh, when you were a young man? Well, <clears throat> I come from a uh, I come from a Protestant Christian background. Uh, I think our second generation, I think our third generation were uh, Hindus is what I what I find out. But uh, my great grandfather, grandfather, you know, into Christianity. And so we're growing up in an established Protestant home. Church was just Sundays. And then my grandfather uh, from my mother's side uh, was a organist. He used to play the pipe organ in, 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 a, in a huge church. So, you know, we were just part of more like uh, the ministerial team. But we used to go and come and growing up in a very small neighborhood, small home, nothing major, nothing too big. Uh, you know, a very, I would say in terms of a lower middle class family and um, growing up uh, in a neighborhood where there was absolutely no Christian influence. It was a Hindu neighborhood completely. Um, and the only uh, exposure to Christianity was the brief few hours that we were in church. After that, there's pretty much nothing uh, apart from the established home family time that my mother was always vehemently, uh, you know, imposing on us that we have to have, uh, you know, family prayer time. So right from a very early age, even as early as my remembrance of maybe three, four year old boy, young boy, I remember family prayer was a must in our home. Uh, I'm curious how uh, how rare that is compared to the rest of the Indian population, um, the Protestant. Uh, how, like, what's what's the percentage of Protestant believers compared to everyone else? Well, law. Uh, we, if you're talking about now, it's probably a little higher, <laughs> and a higher as as high as probably four point five to five percent. That's high for us. But way back then, it was probably around 2% of the Indian population. So you were a, min a minority of the minority. We were the minority among the minority. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and th that obviously comes with some challenges. So that makes you pretty weird compared to everybody else in the nation. Um, so what kind of effect did that have on you and your family growing up? <clears throat> well, um, you, felt, you felt like you were overpowered. You felt like you had not much of a say as far as your religion is concerned and your faith is concerned. But apart from that, being just a citizen and people and friends, there was not, not much of, uh, you know, major opposition that uh, we felt. So early on, that's, that's what it was. We felt like we were, you know, we had no, uh, what's the right word? We were we felt like there was no voice for us. We just existed. That's how it was early on. And and the church that your family attended, what kind of church was that? That was a, that was an established Protestant church, probably a good 150, uh, 175 year old church, probably initiated by the Britishers. So uh, when we were under the British colony. So that's how it flowed uh, through uh, generations. Now, I've heard that Indian families have a lot of children. Is that true for your family also? Well, uh, my grandfather, that's my immediate uh, grandfather's side. Yes, they probably uh, most of everybody, I think, is a minimum of 12 or 13. So they have probably a full soccer team right to start off with. <laughs> <laughs> That's a lot. That is a lot. Uh, but our the immediate next generation uh, was surprising. Uh, we've seen maybe even have six, six children, six and below. So it's unheard of now. Not many people have kids anymore as much as them right now. So but early on, yes, it was most Indian families had minimum at least 10. And how many in your family? Well, in uh, in my family, I grew up with just one older sibling. I have an older brother, 
that's it. It was just two of us, two boys in the home. I've always asked, I've always asked my mom, why not, uh, you know, follow your, you know, your father's, you know, uh, dad's footsteps. A few more kids would have been better, a few more siblings, but you know, things begin to change economically for us in the nation. So automatically when economy came in, family size begin to shrink down. So two boys, uh, is what I grew up with me and my older brother. And your older brother is how much older than you? My older brother is five years older than me. Of what I hear, the story uh, goes that my mother con conceived with my older brother, born, and then they did want to have another child. And most Indian families would probably like to have a boy and a girl and probably consider it done. But my mother could not conceive for five years, almost five years. She wanted a child, couldn't conceive. Uh, she tried every medication possible and uh, doctors and things like that. Eventually she prayed, she committed it. She said, God, if you will give me another child, I will dedicate it, that child to the ministry. And lo and behold, amen, I was born. So after a, after a gap of five years, so uh, in Tamil, it, uh, you know, it means blessing. In Tamil, there's a word called Bhagyam. Bhagyam, Bhagyam means a blessing. So that's how my mother named me Bhagyaraj or Pakyaraj. That means blessed. You know, you were a blessing. So that's how my name, you know, the meaning of my name goes. See, I'm already learning things about you that I never knew. Amazing. So, uh, so growing up, you, you mentioned it was kind of lower or middle class upbringing in India. Well, maybe describe a little bit more of what's, what that's like for, for those who are listening. <laughs> Well, uh, my dad, uh, you know, was working in a trade. He used to work for the Bosch uh, German company building uh, uh, fuel injection pumps for, uh, for, you know, the cars and things like trucks. So Bosch Germany had a manufacturing plant in Bangalore. So my dad worked for that. My mother was a staff nurse. She worked as a nurse in a, in a nice hospital. She was a woman given into service. Uh, or she always loved to serve people to a place where when she was uh, unmarried, uh, she got into be a nurse in a, in a leprosy hospital of all the hospitals. So people would always tell her, why, why do you want to get into a leprosy hospital? Because it's very infectious. You have a future ahead. You need to get married. But she always looked up to, uh, you know, uh, the example of Christ and, you know, it's to be able to serve with compassion. She said, that's what it is. And so uh, working family, both dad and mom worked with, with my brother, but then very hard to uh, run a family when both are working and there was no kind of nanny or, you know, nobody caretaker. So there was always going to be, my dad used to work uh, in the nights. My mom used to work in the morning. So dad would come back from night shift. My mom would hand over the child and she would go to work. So there's not much of family time. So eventually my mom made a decision. She said, it's either going to be family, children, or it's going to be economic. So she dropped her dream job. She said, I'm going to be a stay at home mom. When I was born, she said, what we went through with our older boy, we don't want to go through with the younger. So that, that really hit us with a one, uh, person earning in the homes automatically that it came drastically down. So we were, we were really not privileged to have a lot of good lifestyle, but just enough hand to mouth every month. So that's how it was for us. So Pastor Paki, when, when you were growing up, do you remember um, having, I mean, I mean, you described how you grew up going to church and being part of a sp spiritual a family having prayer times, but uh, do you do you remember having an experience with God, like spiritual uh, encounter with with God at a young age? Well, um, I would say not to the place of um, having a salvation experience, but I would definitely say that um, the ability to experience a touch of God was definitely there. We being from a religious background like that, we always were forced into or pushed into meetings, family prayers, fellowships, home fellowships, or even religious meetings. And 
you know, I've had experience of looking at people being filled with the Holy Spirit. I had no clue what that was. I thought it was weird. But I would definitely say that there was one particular meeting where uh, it was like a three days of prayer and fasting, which I hated when they used to take us to that. And because my mom made sure that we fasted too. That was the hardest. <laughs> so That's good. Uh, but, you know, um, I think it was in one of those meetings when I was probably seven and a half or eight years old. I remember just having this overwhelming, uh, you know, touch. I felt like I, I, I felt like I wanted to cry. I did not know why. But I did cry. So I asked my mom as, as, as early as that, I said, what's happening? And that her, her only response to me was, God is touching you. That, that did not make sense for me because I don't see him. How can he touch me? Age seven, having a, a spiritual encounter with God, God was touching you and you perceived that because you, you, felt, uh, you felt emotional and were crying in a, in a service. And I wonder, um, did, was, was there anything that came out of that? Did, did your life, uh, did you begin to seek God in any way? Um, I wouldn't say I would seek God in any way, but I do, I do uh, vouch that I did have a sense of the fear of God. You know, because my mom uh, would always put that, the reason I say that my dad was not so spiritual anyways, you know, it was just home, work. Mom was predominantly the major uh, influence spiritually for me. So uh, she would always tell that's that's God's hand on you. She would always remind me, I, I hated it when she, she when she did it. But she would always say, that's God's hand on you. That's God's hand on you. So... Uh, so back in my mind, I always knew that God's hand was on me. Uh, eventually, when I did give my life to Christ, so I attribute nothing major came out of that immediately, but it did leave a dent in my psychology, you know, in my psyche. It just it left a dent. God's hand's on me. That's it. That's all I know. And so uh, otherwise, in school, uh, were, were, did you consider yourself to be a pretty good kid or, or yeah. were you getting in fights at all or things like that? No, I don't think so. Um, very unheard of to have school fights here in India. Uh, maybe a little bit here and there, maybe in the early 2000s and things like that. But before that, there was nothing called a school fights or anything. But in school also, no, I was a very good student, made sure I studied well, did well in my schooling. Education was always a big, big demand placed on you. It was almost like you had to study. You had to, because of the economic background, we had to always perform and make sure things were on place. So, uh, you know, I was always good at school. Okay. And so getting into your older years, uh, as you become an adolescent and getting closer to adulthood, um, what kind of uh, dreams and aspirations did you have for yourself? Well, well, uh, coming out of my 10th grade, you know, there was, uh, uh, you know, it's not actual graduation, but you're moving from your schooling to your, you know, you're going into pre-university college. Uh, so I remember the la they, they asked us, what do you want to be? And everybody gets up to speak for a minute, you know, your aspirations. I was an, I, I still am an ardent fan of cricket, you know, just like baseball or basketball in the U.S. Cricket is like a massive game here. I always wanted to play good cricket, be a good player, and like sports-wise, so that requires a lot of finances, uh, which I knew that my my parents would not be able to afford because of a one one person earning and things like that. So um, I I did see that uh, if I can if I can study physiotherapy, which at that time nobody wanted to do that i said man well if i can study physiotherapy i could be the physiotherapist for the indian cricket team and travel around the world and you know just make a living so i remember i got up and i said i wanted to uh, i want to be a physiotherapist and that's uh, a sports physio is what i had an aspiration at the early age of 14 or 15. i had no clue that god was trying to get me to give you give me uh, you know a message when I was looking to give a massage to people. <laughs> That'll preach. <laughs> he just wow. The single alphabet. He took an E, he took an A and put an E and that changed my <laughs> entire life. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Giving messages. How, how far did you get down that road? 
not too not too far not too far because uh, eventually later i did find out that i had to go through a total different educational stream found out the financial implications to all of that so i just shelved that i said nah i'm not gonna do it uh, let's see whatever i can do i can do is what uh, i had in mind but then i was also very i was i'm very good in uh, with my dad for mechanical I, I have a technical mind because of my father uh, as a early age i remember helping my dad in fixing his bike and scooter and things like that you know he's always my screwdriver you know he's always asking for wrench so i'm like the nurse at the operating table handing him over things you know working together with my dad early in his small little uh you know garage kind of a setup so i always had a technical mind so i moved technically then i just i started doing things into the technical side okay and so when did you have your first exposure with the door church in bangalore well uh, um this was in early 2002 is when i had an encounter brief history just before just a couple of years how old were that. you at that time well i think i was uh what was i, I was this is probably 20 years back so i was probably around 20 21. Yeah, so um, age 19, I had an encounter, actually a real encounter with Christ at the age of 19. I remember we were going to an apostolic church. My mom had moved away from the uh, established Protestant church. She, she had a powerful encounter at home with Christ. She got filled with the Holy Spirit, pow powerfully uh, filled. She, she said, you know, I cannot be in dead religion anymore. So she went to church, confronted the pastor and said, this church needs to be saved filled with the Holy Spirit, my, the pastor threw my mom out of church. He said, you cannot bring that religious jargon in here. She she stayed there for some time and eventually, you know, they were butting heads after every service. She was considered to be a rebel uh, and things like that. So then she 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 just quietly, you know, she, she gave her side of the story that she encountered and she moved away. She became part of an apostolic church. Mom constantly challenging me to get saved, repent, you need to get saved, repent, you need to be baptized, which we hated it. Me, my dad and my brother hated it. It was a it was a war at home always. It was three is it was one. one against three, huh? One against three, but it was it felt like as if that one had millions on their side. We always felt outnumbered when my mom used to speak. I had no clue. Now I know why, because God was behind her. Uh, you know, things. So my mom, she she said, I'm not going to the religious church anymore. My father said no. We need to go there. My mom made a decision. She said, I'm going to go to, uh, you know, to a church that has the Holy Spirit. And uh, so that's that's very significant. It sounds like uh, what what can you explain? What what were the events that led up to that? Or did she have some kind of a revelation or was it somebody who spoke to her? Or what do you think? I think she she, uh, she was always a student of the word. I remember her always reading the Bible. I still you know, I think my dad has her Bible still. I'm amazed at the way she used to write the Bible and Mark. And majority of the things that I did see where she had an encounter was from the book of Acts. You know, she started reading those things and she had an encounter. Most uh, Indian homes have a small room, which is called the puja room, or it's where they keep their idols. You know, that would be the uh, or like a home altar kind of a thing. So she converted that whole place into a prayer room. That was a prayer closet. You can always find her. I used to always find her there, reading and you know praying, weeping, wailing. Uh, I had no like mom's mom's crazy, you know. But that's where she got filled. That's where she had a powerful encounter with God, and um, that's what led to her radical salvation. Mom got radically saved. Wow. So it sounds like you might not have ever been on the path that you found yourself on without without her having that experience with, with Christ. Absolutely. I think my first um, inclination towards hardcore, genuine Christianity was through mom. She was the one who was the conviction pusher. She always pushed conviction to us. She was always, once she got saved, once she knew what was right, and she, she would always tell, my dad was a chain smoker. So my dad, would, my mom would always tell her, you need to quit smoking and go to hell straight. And my dad would be like, you know, you don't speak to me like that. So we, we always had arguments. My brother was having his own. He started, 
you know, I'm liking a thug life. Mom would always say, you know, thugs don't go to heaven. She always pointed that out. You, know, you need to repent and with me too. So she would always say, son, don't forget, you need to repent from your sins. There's no other way you can enter heaven. And we never thought anything about it. Mom used to always go to a different church. We went to a different church. Literally, we felt like this new thing of salvation divided our home. We took it as division. Mom took it as consecration. She she always separated. She said, I'm not going to go this. So she always used to tell my dad, you know, this is the way. Me and my dad, my brother, never followed her. But mom used to always put conviction to us, to me particularly. And I think I had an encounter in the age of 19, genuine touch of God. I felt the same thing I felt when I was eight, conviction. I knew then when I was 19, that's not just emotion, that's conviction. And I bowed my knee. I prayed a sinner's prayer. My mom in that small church, apostolic church, led me to Christ there. But nothing came out of it because I backslid after that because I was just moving through life. And this whole thing about religion and all of that didn't. I was not really ready for it. So that's when that church broke, the apostolic church broke because of a moral failure of the pastor that even more created mess in my mind. I said, all of this is fake. How can a pastor fall into moral failure? Uh, I, I just, me, I just walked away. And that's when I encountered the door in 2002, when I heard a crazy Muslim pastor you know, how can he be a Muslim and preach Christ? Out of curiosity, I walked in. I never knew that would change my life forever. Wow. So, yeah, well, wh why was that? Uh, hmm. I guess my question is, what, uh, what was so attractive to you that brought you into that place? Well, we were some part of me, you know, you know how they say that when God touches a person, you know, there's some, there's some you know, imprint that he leaves on their life. And even though I was running from God in two occasions, one as early as seven or eight, and then at the age of 19, I knew some, I knew that same old, the horror, the haunting words of my mom, God's hands on me. It's like, I felt that thing. So I, you know, just running from God, my wife and I, you know, Sam and I, you know, we met in the apostolic church. We were just good friends. But then we move into a relationship, you know, we just, you know, it's like a boyfriend and a girlfriend. No, I want, I liked her. So we, we left the church, the apostolic church, and we were church hopping. We were looking at different churches every Sunday going. This was one of the hopping church. We thought, why don't we just look at it and see? But the curiosity was about a Muslim man was converted. How does this make sense? So that's when I walked in, Sam didn't even come. She didn't want to do anything with the religion. I said, I'll go. I went in the first service. It was like I got cornered. I felt like a rat cornered. The conviction was so heavy. Pastor Gafur at that time was probably running around 10, 12 people, 15 people, small church. I felt I sat in the corner most seat thinking it was cool, but I felt cornered. And I still remember the altar call he gave. He said this, the people are here running from God. I knew it was me. The same haunting words, God's hands on you. And I couldn't resist even in that small setting uh, coming forward in June 22nd, 2002, I bowed my knee at the altar. I said, God, I'm done with this running. I think I felt like I was home. I came, I, I, I gave my life to Christ on that service. Went back. I told my wife, uh, my girlfriend at that time, Sam, I said, Sam, you need to come to this place. She was, She resisted. She didn't want to. I literally forced her to come and the God did the powerful work. She got saved the very next service. So within a, within a span of few services in 2002, we were saved. Wow. So yeah, I can remember. So I was saved in 1999 or 98 when I was 16 years old. And so, um, that was about the same time. So I'm four years into salvation, which means I'm about 19 or 20 years old. And just, you know, myself at that time in the Chandler church, just kind of getting into serious things. Uh, and I'm hearing about these, you know, things in India happening. And I, I couldn't really figure it all out. But I did know that there was a big push. Mm. And uh, Pastor Campbell was 
constantly raising money and and can, preaching about it. And so I can remember, you know, when uh, when Oscar and Linda were there, uh, being convicted to to uh, you know to be a part of that, and that that was really like formative time in, in my experience. And so, who could have known that you know we're we're giving and we're praying for uh, for this missionary, and at the same time, uh, that that's about the same time you come in and God's convicting you, and what what a um, what an event that would go on to lead you know to lead to a future leader of the Indian church. What an incredible thing to think about. But uh, uh, I know that for myself and along with a lot of other people who were there at the time, you know, we could have no idea, you know, what, what God was doing in, in a 20 year old Pakiraj that we could never have met. You know, it's, it's pretty cool to think of. Pastor Oscar Gafur is a one of a kind. What do you remember of him from that time? Mm -hmm. Crazy. <laughs> in a good way. <laughs> Uh, I remember my early experience, yeah, oh, getting saved, passionate. He preached as if there were a thousand people when there were probably 10 people in church. Uh, hardcore preaching, never held back. I'm glad I I had that kind of preaching for a very brief brief period of time I got saved. A year after I got saved, he had to, get, he had to come back uh, to Chandler. So, yeah, I remember him preaching. Uh, hardcore messages on sin, repentance, uh, and things like that. So um, remember, he would always he would always intimidate you uh, in his preaching. He'd always say, you know, don't fall asleep on me. I'm an ex-Muslim. You know, don't mess, <laughs> don't mess with me. Uh, and you know, every every sermon was like, do you have your pen with you? Do you have a book with you? And it's like it's like you you come in and you, it's almost like boot camp every service. But I'm, but it was good, yeah. Was that was that? Um, so I'm I'm curious about because you you mentioned that your your dad was never really into spirituality, and um, I wonder was it good for you to have a, a male influence like that when you got saved and came into that church? Yeah, but I I don't think so. I I did get into any kind of influence in the early. It was too too quick for me to kind of establish that kind of bonding with Pastor Gafur. Because I had just given my life to Christ. I'm checking things out. Things were a little different. Uh, established church where I come from, there are probably a good 200, 250 people in service. You walk into a small church, 10 people around. It kind of looks difficult with, the, with my mindset and everything. But I knew God was trying to speak to me. So I was trying to find my place in that place. Uh, so I really didn't have that kind of time with uh, Pastor Gafur. And that's why I remember when Pastor Campbell came in 2003, Pastor Gafur said, Pastor Campbell's coming. I've only heard about Pastor Campbell's scene in conference videos. And for me to know that Pastor Campbell's coming to our church was like, wow, Campbell's coming. And then, you know, uh, Pastor told me, we need to clean the church. And I'm cleaning the church with all people. Just a handful of people cleaning, setting everything up. And, you know, he's cleaning his cupboard. We're cleaning a small church and everything. I'm thinking, wow, we're doing a cleanup for Pastor Campbell. Little did I know that it was it was a transition. Dan and Monica were going to come and take over. I was thinking it is just a church cleanup for our pastor. And I remember still, I still remember, and I, I can I can still remember that, you know, he's, Pastor Campbell's walking up the stair. It's, it's like as if it happened yesterday. He walked in, Pastor Dan was right behind him at that time. I thought it was his son. He's brought his son and his daughter with him to church. Uh, and then, you know, we had the transition service. I had no clue what a transition was, but I knew when they announced it, they said, you know, he has to go back and then Pastor Dan is to come in. So at that time, I felt that part of influence that I didn't feel I'm going to miss somebody. So that's the amount of influence I had in that short one year. And so what what was the state of the church at that time? You, you mentioned it was still fairly uh, initial stages, right? Yes. I believe hundreds of people walked through the church. No doubt, Pastor Gafur had a massive influence, radical. I still remember him going in front of the mosque, which is the biggest mosque in Bangalore, right before the prayer could end. He would stand in front of the mosque with a bullhorn and preach to those Muslims and said, you need to repent, you need to get saved. And oh you'll, get all of these, you'll get all of these Muslims who would threaten him and you stand outside. There'd be a beeline outside the church to debate with him and how could you be an ex-Muslim and you know do this and things like that but he was 
Uh, there was no iota of fear in him at all. And I remember once there was probably around six to eight guys, thuggish looking Muslim guys outside waiting to, you know, create trouble. And me and my wife and then a handful of church people, we said, Pastor, we're going to be here to keep your, to keep an eye on your safety. And he said, you don't need to worry about it. I'm a desert storm veteran. I can take any of these guys. You guys can go home. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. What a guy. So, that, so that's how it was. You know, he was always very, you know, uh, aggressive in, in everything. So, yeah. But well, we are, hundreds, we are short on time. Hundreds of people. Yeah. So, so go, go ahead. Hundreds of people. Hundreds of people that, you know, walk through. People get saved. People get healed. But initial part of the ministry was like the, were like the nine lepers. Not many people stayed. They received their miracles. Truly genuine miracles of salvation, marriage restored. I've seen demon possession, people being delivered from demons. But, you know, never came back and things like that. But, yeah, good number of people. He left a core of believers, a nice core of believers. Yeah, but he put Christ into us. Our first few encounter with the supernatural was with Pastor Gafur. I, re I remember being an usher for a demon possession and my job was to keep the trash can ready because that person was thrown up every time he prayed. Oh. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, we don't know what we're missing. <laughs> so at some point you, uh, well, you were not married to Samantha when you came into the church. So mm -hmm. you, you made the decision obviously to, to marry her. And yeah. was that a, was that a church wedding? Yeah. So 2000, 2002, we came in. 2003, uh, Dan and Monica Rubianis took over. They just embraced us. We never felt uh, any, any uh, you know, um, void when Pastor Gafur left. That's one of the mark of the transition. One of the best transitions that I have seen is that he just took us under his wings. And a father figure, a spiritual father is what I found in Dan and Dan Rubianis. That's what uh, I would come to because... What my dad, my physical father could not really give me, he brought that into my life. So he gave us a year. He was very patient with us for a year uh, because he had just taken over. My wife and I used to come on the same bike. We did not know about anything about righteous living. We were not in sin or fornication or anything like that. But, you know, coming, going alone and things like that. So he was very gracious. And I think at the one year mark, he started helping us on doing things right. You're going to do this. This is what you need to do. He started helping us. So 2005, my wife and I, we got married uh, a short couple of years. And ours was the first Jesus people wedding in the nation of India. So it was very hard for us to do it because there was a lot of restrictions. But we did it anyways. And I'm so glad we did. Hmm. Well, I wish I had another hour to talk to you. But we're, we're up against the time restraint. But uh, do, do you remember... Um, having a, a call to preach early on or was that was that even on your mind on the radar screen 2004 was the first conference in india and uh, i remember pastor joe zebel was preaching and he he gave a simple call for people to preach i got saved in 2002 and by 2003 uh dan rubianis was preaching vision uh in a church planting discipleship world evangelism i remember constantly seeing videos of Chandler conference. He used to show Chandler church videos and Pastor Campbell, Pastor Mitchell, and he started putting that vision in. All it took was just one year for that vision to really start uh, you know, sprouting in my heart. I remember 2004, December, I answered the call to preach. Within a year of him taking over, I said, nah, I'm, this is what I'm called to do. I wonder what was your mother's reaction when you told her about that? When I got... Uh, um, when my mother passed in 2003, she, she passed away. She was 51 when she passed. But the good thing was she passed away in 2003. Uh, I got saved in 2002. So my mother, she was super excited because I got saved. That was her heart's desire. So my mom got saved first. I got saved second. Then my dad at three and then my brother at four. So that's the order that our family eventually came to Christ. So when I got saved, she was super excited. Uh, you know, she was like, I told you, son, I told you. I was always, I told you God's hands. I'm like, dang, again, you say the same word, but, but <laughs> God's hands. 
Well, she was right. She was yeah, right. She, and, she was uh, absolutely right. She was absolutely right. So 2003, uh, uh, a month and a half after Dan and Monica had taken over, my mom passed away. So he did my mom's funeral. You know, so that was uh, very uh, emotional. Absolutely. Well, I, I, I have great memories of uh, Dan and Monica because they were follow-up leaders when when me and my wife started getting serious about coming in the church. And so I remember going to his house and, uh, you know, he fed me spaghetti and meatballs and, <laughs> and uh, talked about Jesus. And, uh, so he was very instrumental in my life too. And so, you know, I, I thought that he had done something wrong when he went out to go pioneer, like, where, where did he go? What happened? <laughs> Pastors mad at him and then, uh, now sending him across the globe. And so, you know, that's where, that's where vision was born, but I, I'm so glad that he was, there uh, at the time to be, um, you know, a leadership figure for you. And he is a really important part of your life, isn't he? Yeah, he, he's predominantly the one who discipled me almost for eight years, you know, so apart from all the other influence that I've had. And then Pastor Campbell is my longstanding pastor now almost for 10 plus years. But Dan and Monica were very instrumental for me and my wife to make those decisions in, in you know, our destiny. Yeah. Well, again, I, w I wish I had more time. I have a uh, hundred other questions for you, but uh, it's Sunday morning. I don't want to keep you from your prayer meeting and your, uh, but I, we, we um, you know, you are a, uh, a leader in India. You are, you are an example to men uh, in your country, but, but also around the world and you're a conference speaker. And, um, and I wonder, you know, what kind of word you would have for, for young men who are listening to your testimony and, and what God did in your life and how you could encourage them. I would always tell people that the best thing to do is to do what God has for you. You can try a million things. I've, I've tried a million things. I would challenge every young preacher to find your calling. And if you're called to preach, stick to it. Keep yourself away from distractions, which could be many. And uh, I had to make the decision whether it was going to be a dream job or it's going to be my destiny. So I chose destiny rather than my dream. Uh, and, can can uh, you take a minute to explain that decision? Well, 2003, after getting, uh, you know, after answering the discipleship call, I remember getting a job to go to Wisconsin to where General Electric had given me a job opportunity to come to the U.S., a dream job for me. But I remember preachings on uh, discipleship and, you know, preaching the gospel, reaching our nation for Christ. India for Jesus was the shout and the battle cry in our church. And uh, I remember you know, that decision that I'm called to preach. So when I made sure of my calling that I'm called to preach, uh, along came this decision to leave all of that because I had to leave a church and go to the U.S. for two and a half to three years, eventually to settle down. But I made a decision, no, because uh, that part of vision that was imparted was very strong. So I made that call not to go. So I'm glad I made that call because I think... Uh, you know, to see what God has brought uh, my wife and I thus far uh, in the humble things that we can do, that God would even use us uh, from a background that we were in to see what God is doing. You know, it's only because I was very faithful and I, am, I still am because I still get calls. I still get, uh, you know, people who want me to work for them and this, that, the other. But I would say one of the important things is to keep yourself away from distraction. Keep the focus on what God has called you to do. And, uh, you know, uh, and step out and do with all heart and passion. And, you know, some people say sky is the limit. I don't think sky is the limit. You know, there is no limit to the endless possibilities that God can do through your life. So every young preacher needs to do what God has called him to do. Amen. You, you, we really can't understand um, what that decision entails uh, for for young young man in India and uh, having having uh, an opportunity in the United States, that's a, uh, that's like a golden ticket, man. And for you to uh, choose the, the, the will of God over that is, um, is an, an amazing thing. And it's a great testimony. And uh, we're grateful for that because, Hey, we're, we're in America here, people that are listening to this or wherever they are around the world, there, there's going to be maybe not to that same level, but there's going to be similar distractions, like you yeah. said, that will keep people from the will of God. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, I always tell people, and I've also mentioned this to Pastor Campbell along the way, uh, sometimes, you know, uh, people make a big deal about this decision to leave to the U.S., but I think 
uh, it's really not a big deal considering what Christ has done. I know, I know I can seem very, you know, hyper-religious and things, but with all humility, I think that's a reasonable decision for us to do with what Christ has done. If Paul can say that I count all these things as done, you know, I really do not count this as just massive sacrifice that I put across. I think that's 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 one of the simple decisions that I had to make. It was it was not I tell don't don't glorify that decision. I think it was reasonable outcome of a genuine touch of God on the inside. So I, I count it as a very reasonable service. Right. And you wouldn't be who you are today without that. Absolutely. You know, I attribute to that decision, you know, that that was a very key point in my life that could have spun me out of the will of God. And I'm glad, uh, as they say, the safest place is to be in the will of God. I was bang in the middle of the will of God, and I'm glad I am, uh, you know, with that decision. Amen. Wonderful. Um, do you have any um, any particular prayer requests that our audience can lift up for you as we close this out? Well, um, as always, you know, we've always challenged for people to pray, uh, whether you know it or not. They just made it official that India is the most populous nation in the world, uh, surpassing China is what uh, official reports are out here in India. I'm not sure how it's in, in the entire world, but I think uh, with that being said, and the hour that we are living in and what we heard preached all through and the things that we see in, 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 the, in the happenings around the world, if, and I believe God, Christ is coming soon. All I would say is that we pray for the world, but I'm, I'm believing that God is going to give us workers to reach this massive nation. That, that scripture truly comes alive when it says the harvest is plenty, the laborers are few. So... I would encourage all uh, uh, viewers or listeners to all of this. You know, I know we pray for a global harvest. Uh, I, I ask you to pray for the nation of India. Uh, there's a shift among the, the youths of this nation. Religious, traditional beliefs are going. Youths are very open to what, you know, they want to try things. Obviously, sin is rampant. Uh, we have just seen... Uh, gay, uh, no same-sex marriage almost being legalized now in our nation, and all of uh, the homosexual, the transgender, the lesbian movement is at the peak. But I believe, in midst of all of this, even with the persecution, I believe uh, revival, uh, you know, comes in midst of this. So I'm asking you guys to pray for our nation that God will give us bold proclaimers in midst of all of this to preach the gospel. Is there still room for missionaries in India? Well, there is always room, but uh, it always going. It's always requires uh, extra caution in how we have to operate. The liberty that you probably can find. One of the first things when I came to the U.S., I was envious about was the liberty that America had towards the preaching. As I, I remember telling myself, if I had this kind of freedom in my nation, oh my gosh, what could I do? Hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, so. There is definitely room, but it requires wisdom. I see. Yeah. Well, Pastor Campbell is still calling for plenty of them. Uh, there's lots of need and a lot of people that need Jesus there. So that we will continue to pray for the, the nation of India. Yeah. Pastor Campbell's heart has been for the nations, especially a big chunk of that is for India. And you know, we would not be here without Pastor Campbell, his heart. And I remember when I, uh, Pastor Campbell became my pastor, one of my first prayers that I made is God. Uh, and I remember telling this to pastor, I said, God, I want to be loyal to my pastor. I want to be a loyal man. I want to be an armor bearer. I never want to violate his trust that he has placed on me or the years of labor that he has put into our nation. So whatever be the case, you know, we feel, we feel like, you know, uh, like uh, we will do anything. Like David's mighty men who risk their life to get some water, that will be for my pastor. We will make sure we risk it all to make sure to keep his heart for the nations, you know, so Pastor Campbell has been such a blessing for our nation. Amen. Well, it's it's uh it's still on my list. I, I I've been wanting to come to India for a while. We'll make it happen one of these days. Yeah, you need to. I hear you going all around the world, and <laughs> one of these days. You know, to be very honest, in fact, you know, early two thousand three, two thousand four, five. I remember hearing your name from Pastor Dan. You know, I have a friend, Adam Dragoon, and. I had no clue, and here we are, many years. And then after meeting you and getting to know you now, you know, 
I've always known you as something, someone technical and things like that. So, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm very glad to be able to bring this conversation to our listeners because you are a, a treasure for the kingdom of God. We have uh, prayed for you for many years, and we're so grateful to see what God is doing through you uh, in the nation. I, I hope I can close by uh, yeah. praying for you, if, if that's okay. Absolutely. I do want to take this time to thank you for having me in midst of all the difficulties we've had to make this happen. This is not new for us to have these type of settings in India, always distractions, but I'm glad we pushed it through. We appreciate you guys, your prayers and, you know, Pastor Adam, your ministry. Uh, it's touching millions of lives, whether you know it or not. Many people in my church, you know, listen to your podcast and things like that, you know. So uh, it, it, is, it is a priceless, you know, uh, a tool for people to listen to testimonies uh, of many other people that you've had sermons and things like that so i want to appreciate you and the ministry for having this and also the the viewers and the listeners who pray for us i may not know you and thank you for you know lifting us in your prayers because we truly can feel your prayers sometimes in in some of the hardest conditions we know that somebody's praying out for us out there so really appreciate you guys thank you for having me over Amen. Well, I appreciate that. Father, we're so grateful uh, for Pastor Paki and his wife, Samantha, their family and the ministry that you have given to them. God, I'm just praying that you would continue to cover them and help them, Lord. We are so grateful that uh, that you have placed this man where he is now uh, in, in such a time as this, Lord, with such a great need in that nation. We're praying that you would give him wisdom, strength, and the ability, God, the the uh, the strategy to reach uh, so many lost people, and we're praying, God, bless him today as he uh, as he conducts those services and preaches the word of God. Give him uh, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, God, when, in all that he does. And I thank you for uh, all those who have listened, God, that you would bless them, and uh, as they listen to this uh, this testimony today, we thank you for the opportunity in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Pastor Baki Raj, I know you have to uh, go off to your prayer meeting, and I, I again, want to say how much I appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. Appreciate you, too. All right, and for all of our listeners, we thank you for listening. Thanks for making it this far on Testimony Tuesday, and uh, until we talk again, uh, have a wonderful day, and we'll see you on the next Testimony Tuesday.